Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn in it to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Look at verses 27 through 34 this morning. And the text is there in the next page of the bulletin, if you'd like to follow along there. You know, our passage this morning is a record of uh, two miracles that Jesus performed. He made the blind to see, and he made the mute to speak. And just taken at face value, those are fantastic things. Just saying that is enough uh, to inspire us to praise him. But these miracles really um, communicate something deeper, uh, that something more is going on here than physical abilities just being restored. Often the miracles of Jesus are called signs because they point to something beyond themselves, to some profound truth about who Jesus is or what he came to do, for example, Uh, You know, when he feeds thousands of people, he miraculously provides bread for them. And then he says, I'm the bread of life. So this bread miracle is like an illustration of who he is, what it means to have a relationship with him. The miracle of bread points to him as a sign. These two miracles are both performed with explicit reference to spiritual realities. They're symbols of Jesus' spiritual power. Jesus wants to show us that he has power to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. Jesus wants to show us that he has the power to set us free from spiritual oppression so that we can confess him as Lord and sing his praises. That's what we'll be talking about this morning. Let me pray first, then we'll read the scripture. Father, as we hear your word, we pray that by your spirit you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and tongues to confess and sing your truth in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So we're really going to focus most of our time on that first paragraph, that first miracle Uh, the one that has to do with restoring the sight of the two blind men. The sense of sight is pretty important to us. I think everybody in the room would acknowledge that. Uh, By sight, we can recognize danger. By sight, we can recognize a friend. By sight, we can find what we need or find where to go. By sight, uh, we can enjoy what is beautiful. By sight, we can learn and come to know the world around us. By sight, we can connect to each other in relationship. The majority of our perception of the world comes through our sense of sight. I saw an estimate that said 80% of our perception of the world comes through our sense of sight. 
And even though our other senses can compensate to some degree, uh, the loss of one's sight is a severe loss. Being blind means you simply cannot perceive some things. You cannot connect to the world in some ways, no matter how finely tuned your other senses might be. Being blind means you've lost some connection to reality that you should have as a human being with a sense of sight. Having your sight restored would be an indescribable joy. Uh, Some of my favorite internet videos are of people uh, who are, they're colorblind, right? Uh, And their families give them these special glasses that are really expensive that somehow enable them to see the full spectrum of bright, vivid colors for the first time. And when, when they put these glasses on, they always weep for joy and uh, become speechless. And then when they can talk, they say something like, you guys can see this all the time? You know, it's uh, amazing. And that's just having one facet of their vision restored. They can see, just not color. So imagine what it'd be like for someone who's completely blind to have their sight restored out of darkness, light. To be able to see would change everything about their lives. The way they experience the world would be made new. How they engage in relationships with other people would be made new. Their whole connection to reality would be made new. And that's what these two blind men experienced when they encountered Jesus. And they experienced the opening of their eyes on more than one level. They had uh, their connection to earthly reality made new through the restoration of their physical sight. And they had their connection to a heavenly spiritual reality made new through their encounter with Jesus. The blind were made able to see in more ways than one. Uh, Because not only were their physical eyes opened, the eyes of their hearts were opened. uh, So that they recognized Jesus by faith. They saw him for who he really was. And it changed everything in their lives. It says, as they were leaving the place where they had uh, just raised a little girl from the dead, which we looked at last week, they're leaving that place And two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. So Jesus is called the son of David several times in Matthew's gospel. Uh, But this is the first time that someone has recognized him and called him that. These blind men are the first to recognize, the first to see that Jesus is the son of David. It's an important title for the one who was expected to be the Messiah, the Christ, who was prophesied of throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, What we have is the Old Testament. It's an important title for the Christ, the son of David. One of the major promises God had made long before about who this Messiah, this anointed one from God, this Savior, we would really be about his, uh, the significance of his identity is that he would be the son of David. This is the main promise that uh, you can remember. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. The Lord said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the Christ, the son of David, This descendant, bodily descendant of David, would be faithful to God in ways that no one ever had been before. He would glorify the Father and he would set people back in right relationship with the Father. He'd build this house for God out of the people of God. And God would make him, the son of David, 
the king of his own everlasting kingdom, and he'd grant him all authority in heaven and on earth, true authority, true power, God's own power. So we're talking about a human being because he's the descendant of David. But we're also talking about an eternal ruler exercising God's own power. That's interesting. So do you remember how God revealed his choice of David to be king? Uh, No one could have seen it coming. David was just a little shepherd boy. He's unimpressive, but he's faithful to God. He was unlike the standard vision of powerful kings in the world. You know, people who climb their way to the top of the power ladder uh, through any any means necessary. Um, David was unlike them. And and like his earthly ancestor, the son of David, would be this strange choice that no one would have made. Maybe unimpressive in some ways. Jesus' teachings were strange. His methods were strange. His life of service was not what we expected. His suffering was not what you would expect from the king of kings. His death was not what you would expect from this powerful king of an eternal kingdom. It's because of our sin, the eyes of our hearts are blind to his glory. We don't recognize him when he comes into the world. We cannot see him for who he is. We don't recognize him as the king of kings and lord of lords. We cannot perceive actually the divinity of his ways. So how are these blind men able to recognize him, to call him son of David? How are these blind men able to follow him on the road to where he was going? We don't know. That's not described. That part of the story is a bit enigmatic, which is sort of how the Spirit works in mysterious ways. But they do recognize and follow Jesus, and they cry aloud for his mercy. So surely Jesus has heard them, but he doesn't respond right away. And there's something, I think, that is worth noticing about that, the fact that he doesn't respond to them immediately, like he so frequently does when people meet Jesus on the road and ask him for help. Uh, Somehow these blind men recognize Jesus to be the son of David. He's the true king of God's people, exercising God's own authority, God's own power, and somehow they follow him to this house where he's going, causing a scene because they're crying aloud, but he doesn't address them out in the open and in public. Uh, When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. So he waits until they're in the house to respond to their loud cries for mercy. There might be an element here of some desire for privacy. You do get that sense from a lot of what you see in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus sort of demanding privacy or, or even secrecy. Don't tell people about this miracle that I've just performed, as he's going to do. He, he had just raised the girl from the dead, but if you remember, he had dismissed the crowd before doing that. And in other accounts of that uh, story in the other Gospels, um, you know, the point is made that he dismissed everybody so that really only a couple of his disciples were present when that happened. And still the report of that miracle was spreading like wildfire throughout that district. And after he heals these blind men, he forbids them from talking about it, maybe because he doesn't want to grow in earthly popularity, merely earthly popularity, right? Maybe he doesn't want to be mistaken for just merely being a wonder worker. Uh, Maybe he knows that as he becomes more renowned, uh, it'll accelerate the opposition against him. All of those things happen. Who knows exactly um, 
But I think the main thing going on here is that Jesus is testing the faith of the blind men. He's testing their faith. Do they just want to cause a scene out in public and draw attention by crying aloud? Or is Jesus important enough to them to cause them to pursue him? To persevere when it comes uh, to, uh, you know, he's, he's not responding to their prayers, right? He hasn't responded. They have to keep following him and pressing and persevering in their requests to follow hard after him, even when it's difficult for them to do that because they're blind. It's hard for them to follow. Is Jesus important enough to them to stand before him and confess him as Lord as they ask him for his mercy? These blind men have seen something compelling in Jesus. Even though they're blind, they've seen something. They've recognized Jesus as the son of David, the true king promised by God. He's the Lord exercising God's authority. And notice this, they don't ask him for healing. That's not what they say. They ask him for mercy. We assume that they mean the mercy of healing their physical eyes. But it's uh, deliberately left at just they're asking for mercy. And I think we should not jump to make the common assumption that, we're, that he's talking about the, the mercy of healing their eyes. I, <clears throat> that's the kind of assumption that the crowds are always making about the kinds of things that we should want from Jesus. About the kinds of things Jesus came to do for us. About the kinds of things that we pray for him to give us. <clears throat> the common assumption is, have mercy on me by healing my eyes, by fixing my body, by fixing my circumstances. And I think that's the kind of assumption that Jesus actually tries to suppress. He didn't come into the world just to make our lives more comfortable by taking away every single physical illness or defect. He came to reveal the kingdom of God to us. He came to restore our relationship to God. And his miracles are teaching tools to those ends. So the blind men recognize something in Jesus greater than his ability to restore their physical sight. They recognize him as the one who comes with the authority to extend the mercy of God to them. That's what they see in him. He has the authority to extend God's mercy. They need God's mercy more than they need the physical sense of sight to be restored. You need God's mercy more than you need your life made easy or more comfortable. That can be difficult to accept, especially if you're familiar with suffering, if you've lived with some kind of disability uh, or chronic pain or some kind of oppression or some kind of relational loss. It can be difficult to accept that you need God's mercy more than you need your life made easier. But that's what the blind men see. They've come to see truly because their encounter with Jesus has meant a new connection to God's reality for them. The eyes of their hearts have been opened to see Jesus as the King of mercy. Jesus' question to them uh, supports this understanding of what's going on here. He doesn't ask, do you believe that I'm able to heal your sight? He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? That is, answer their cry for mercy. You think I can give you mercy? And when they confess their faith in him, yes, Lord, it says, then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. 
Right? That is not a way of Jesus saying, like some prosperity gospel preacher, if you really believe I can heal your eyes, then let your eyes be healed. He's not saying that. This is Jesus saying, let the physical reality of your sight be in accordance with the spiritual reality of your, your spiritual sight, your faith. Since you can see me with the eyes of your heart, see with the eyes that are in your head. And their eyes were opened. <clears throat> their eyes were opened physically because their eyes had been opened spiritually by faith in Jesus. So Psalm 146 says, Jesus, <clears throat> well, it doesn't say Jesus is the Lord. It says the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, but Jesus is the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind. Through him, through a relationship with him by faith, we come to see God spiritually. We're made able to recognize danger. We're made able to recognize our true spiritual enemies. We're made able to recognize in him our true friend. With the eyes of faith, we can see what we truly need. His mercy. With the eyes of faith, we can see that his mercy is not weakness, that it's the very power of God, the power of God's self-giving love, which is at the heart of his everlasting kingdom. With the eyes of our hearts opened, we can behold the true beauty of his sacrificial love. We can know, as it says in <clears throat> Ephesians 1, we can know the hope to which he's called us with the eyes of our hearts opened, enlightened, we can know the riches of his glory here in the church, what he's done in the church. We can perceive the immeasurable greatness of his resurrection power that's at work in us. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind so that we can see and know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. With the true spiritual sight that Jesus gives you, our connection to God's truth, to God's reality, it's made new. Our relationships are made new. Everything about our lives is made new because of this sight. Do you see that Jesus is the king of God's everlasting kingdom, that he has the authority to extend God's mercy to you? Do you see the exercise of his authority in his life of service, in his suffering on the cross, in his sacrificial atoning death? Do you believe that you need God's mercy and believe that he's able to give it to you because of who he is, because he's God in the flesh? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that brings up the second <clears throat> miraculous sign that Jesus worked here, which we'll treat more briefly. <clears throat> it says in verse 32, as the uh, men who were formerly blind were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. So again, this encounter communicates uh, more than a physical reality. It communicates a spiritual one. Right? The mute man doesn't just have a problem with his vocal cords or his tongue. He's being oppressed by a demon, by a spiritual power that's greater than himself. And the Gospels don't blame every ailment on demons. You can even find examples of mute people coming to Jesus for healing where it doesn't say they're mute because they're demon-oppressed. But here the connection is made explicit. The spiritual reality has affected his physical reality, resulting in the loss of his speech. So he cannot express his heart through words. He can't articulate his thoughts and his beliefs, something that people should be able to do. He can't share the things that are of greatest importance to him. He can't confess his faith or pray aloud or celebrate in song. 
What if you couldn't celebrate in song? All explicitly because of the oppression of a spiritual power, because of a spiritual reality in his life. Ultimately, because of sin, humanity found itself under the power of the devil. We put ourselves under the power of the devil through our rebellion against God. In our sin, we align ourselves with the devil's power, with his purposes. We choose to join him in his enmity with God. And it becomes a slavery, an oppression that we cannot escape. Cannot save ourselves from the spiritual forces of darkness. We have to be rescued. We must be rescued by the Lord. He must set us free. If we're to have our tongues loosened to confess his truth and to sing his praises, the Lord Jesus will have to be the one to do it because we are under the sway of spiritual forces that are greater than ourselves. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see in the second miraculous sign here. Jesus is the Lord who makes the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He doesn't just have power over vocal cords, you know, to relax the muscles in the tongue or restore nerve connections or whatever it is that's wrong with people being unable to speak. Jesus has absolute authority over all reality, top to bottom, heavenly, earthly, spiritual, divine, all of it. He has the power to deliver us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God. He gives the Spirit of God without measure so that we can confess the highest truth, so that we can give expression to the joy of our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. When Jesus made this demon-oppressed mute man able to speak again, the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel, but the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. He exercises the spiritual power of darkness over the powers of darkness. Pharisees were blind. They didn't have the ability to recognize Jesus for who he truly was. They were bound to speak evil of him. They were not free to praise him. Maybe their physical eyes worked, but they dwelt in spiritual darkness. Maybe their physical tongues worked, but they spoke out of their spiritual oppression. They said, Jesus is accursed, which they wouldn't do if they spoke in the Spirit of God. They could not proclaim Jesus is Lord because the Holy Spirit had not freed them to make that confession. They opposed Jesus. They saw only evil in him. They spoke only evil of him. And they would have blinded and silenced everyone else from praising him, just as the demons and spiritual forces of darkness would. And this is because of their self-righteousness. They didn't believe their need for God's mercy, nor were they willing to say that Jesus had authority to extend God's mercy to them. Self-righteousness, like theirs, is the darkest spiritual night, it's the worst spiritual oppression, it's the deepest pit of spiritual slavery that there is. And apart from the Lord opening our eyes to recognize him for who he is, apart from the Lord loosing our tongues to confess our faith in him, we would all continue in such blindness and dead speech as that. As the Lord himself says in Revelation chapter 3, we might think we're rich, but in reality, we're wretched and pitiable and poor. We might think that we're clothed in our own righteousness, but in reality, we're naked. 
We might think we see, but we're blind. We might think we, we need nothing, but we need him. We need to come to Jesus. We need him to make us to see and to sing. We have this absolute need, and he has his absolute divine mercy. Psalm 72, the king delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. So let's go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us by making yourself known here in these scriptures and for making us able to recognize you and trust you and praise you through the Holy Spirit. We pray for ourselves and for others that you would open the eyes of the blind to see your glory, that you would set our tongues free to confess and celebrate your glory. Help us not only to recognize, but to embrace you and your ways. This has to be our prayer. We must pray for you to do these things because we cannot save ourselves. We are completely at your mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us. Amen.